0: Hi, I'm Ted Yednock, and I'm an immunologist trained at the University of California in San Francisco. And for a number of years, I worked for a company called Elan Pharmaceuticals. At Elan, we developed a drug called Dysabri for the treatment of multiple sclerosis. Um, So, I'm going to talk about the identification and development of Dysabri in two lectures. Today, I'm going to talk about uh, the scientific underpinnings of Dysabri and how we think it works by inhibiting immune cell infiltration of the central nervous system preventing the damage associated with the autoimmunity in MS. I'll also talk about the preclinical work and the clinical studies that we did in order to demonstrate that the drug was safe and efficacious. In the second lecture, I'll talk about how we believe the selective mechanism of this drug allowed for the emergence of a very rare but serious brain infection called progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy, or PML. And I'll also talk about the complexity that that caused for patients and physicians and the FDA, as well as the companies, in trying to understand how PML was associated with Disabrin. So, at first, I I will um, say a few words about multiple sclerosis. So, MS is an autoimmune disease uh, of the CNS, as I mentioned, and it's involved in the destruction of myelin. So, there's a very strong T and B cell response against myelin, Um, And once myelin is lost, you have impaired nerve conduction and neuronal loss. Now, MS can happen anywhere in the central nervous system, so it can affect any part of your body. A patient may feel tingling in an arm or a hand, um, or they may have loss of vision, or uh, issues with control of bladder function, or or not be able to walk. Um, It affects about 300,000 patients in the United States. Um, It's more common in women and men. And as I've alluded to, it's a devastating disease, and it affects people in the prime of life between the ages of 20 and 40, but it can be seen at any age. Now, usually, uh, MS is a relapsing... and begins as a relapsing-remitting disease, um, so the attacks can come on very quickly, you know, a vision loss can happen very quickly. Um, and then over the period of days to months, uh, there will be a degree of recovery to varying levels. Um, but after... 15 or 20 years, the disease often becomes progressive, and this happens in about 65% of patients, and now it's more of a a chronic neurodegenerative disease without the acute inflammatory attacks. So, MRI is actually a very useful diagnostic and monitoring tool for multiple sclerosis. So, this is an MRI image, and what, what is often done in MS is that patients are given a contrasting agent called gadolinium, it's injected intravenously, and normally it's excluded from the brain. However, in MS, when there's an active lesion, the blood-brain barrier is leaky, and so gadolinium will enter the brain and show up very prominently in an MRI. Now, if you were to look at this lesion um, through a microscope, you would see this. This is a blood vessel in multiple sclerosis, um, and what's happened here is that our immune cells travel throughout the body um, in the bloodstream, And normally, they just go right through the brain. But in the case of MS, there's something happening to the blood vessel wall, and and the immune cells will adhere to the vessel wall, migrate in, and accumulate in these large clusters around the blood vessel, and this basically is ground zero for demyelination and neuronal damage. So, in 1990, we had a very simple hypothesis, and that was that if we could inhibit immune cell attachment to the blood vessel wall, we could prevent their migration into the brain and all the damage associated with that. And so, um, when I say adhesion molecule, picture Velcro. So, we're trying to identify the little hooks on the the immune cell that allow it to attach to the blood vessel wall, specifically at times of inflammation. Now, since this is a brain disease, it's really important to be able to do these kind of studies using an, an animal model. So, the best animal model for multiple sclerosis is experimental autoimmune encephalomyelitis, or EAE. Now, in EAE, this is a a, a model in the guinea pig, but we also use models in in mice and rats. So, in this model, this is a a a slice through the brain of a guinea pig with EAE. You can see a large blood vessel, and in the blood vessel there are infiltrating immune cells, which are the blue cells here, Um, and the section is stained with a red dye for myelin, So, you can see that around the blood vessel, there's a huge loss of myelin. Um, And then, also, the the little uh, green dots are axons, or nerve fibers, that are... are looking at them in cross-section. And normally, over here, you can see that the nerve fibers are surrounded by red myelin, so they're quite well insulated from each other. But when the myelin is lost, the nerve cells or the nerve fibers are pushed around and clustered, and the space in between is occupied by immune cells and by edema. And so you can see with this kind of damage how nerve conduction would be impaired. This is the way the model progresses in animals. So, uh, in the guinea pig, we immunize the animals with uh, spinal cord homogenate. This causes a very strong response, again, of B cells and T cells to myelin. And so that by day 9 or 10, the immune cells will begin to infiltrate the central nervous system, and you'll begin to see a degree of hind limb paralysis in in the acute phase. And then the animals begin to get a little bit better, but then, by day 15 or so, um, the disease begins to progress and enters the chronic phase. And the the difference here is, this is when demyelination begins. So, once demyelination begins, the nerve fibers are pushed around, the immune cells are are even more activated, and the disease progresses with just more and more demyelination. When we were first doing these experiments, we were a very small lab in in a small company, and we really didn't have a good model of of EAE. In fact, we weren't working in this area at all. We we were trying to develop um, therapeutics for Alzheimer's disease, and we were trying to develop an animal model of Alzheimer's. It would have been the world's first model, which which we eventually did, but our initial attempts weren't so good. And in fact, we um, really were inducing a, a, a model in which there was a chronic inflammation. And it's that kind of inflammation that initially got us interested in this area to begin with. So, we took inflamed brains from these animals in this strange model of Alzheimer's disease and did a very simple experiment. Um, We took these sections and overlaid them, or exposed them to a suspension of human lymphocytes, and we found that the lymphocytes would adhere selectively to these inflamed vessels. So, you can see these very dark blue, large circles are the human lymphocytes, and they're adhering right in the center of these blood vessels, right where you would expect to see blood cells in the circulation. They don't bind elsewhere in the section, and they didn't bind to non-inflamed vessels. So, the fact that we were getting physical adhesion of these cells to inflamed vessels um, suggests that this is probably a physiologically relevant relevant interaction, because these ligands, whatever... these adhesive ligands, whatever they are, were being induced in the context of a whole brain. We also isolated endothelial cells from rat brains and put them into culture, Stimulated them with TNF, and we found there that lymphocytes would adhere as well. So that was great. We now had two different assays by which we could look at lymphocyte interaction with inflamed endothelium so we could screen for inhibitors of that interaction. What we did is made um, thousands of antibodies against the lymphocyte surface at random and screened for antibodies that would inhibit this. So in this assay, we could. Um, screen thousands of antibodies, and in this one we could screen um, perhaps a dozens. It, it was um, a much more cumbersome assay. But nonetheless, both assays gave us exactly the same answer, and that is that alpha4 beta1 integrin is very important for lymphocytes and monocytes to adhere to the, to the inflamed brain vessel. So in the presence of anti-alpha4 or anti-beta1, you can see that there is no longer any human lymphocyte attachment to the vessels in the section. So, this is what we thought was going on. Um, lymphocytes and monocytes expressed alpha-4, beta-1 integrin, and they were binding to some um, ligand expressed by inflamed brain endothelial cells. So, we also knew in uh, 1990... and in fact, I was... I was kind of disappointed with this um, observation, because we knew that alpha-4 integrin was expressed by many cells in the circulation. Lymphocytes, monocytes, eosinophils, basophils, Unfortunately, it was low, or negative, on neutrophils, red blood cells, and platelets. However, we have been hoping to find sort of a brain-specific adhesion molecule that was expressed by a a small subset of of pathology-causing immune cells, but in fact it was expressed very broadly. Nonetheless, as you'll see, I believe that alpha 4 beta one integrin turned out to be a pretty selective adhesion molecule for the CNS. Um, The molecule, alpha-4, had been cloned the year before by... Yoshi Takata and Martin Hemler's group. And a number of groups were also identifying ligands for alpha 4. Um, for example, Elizabeth Weiner had found that an alternatively spliced form of fibronectin was a ligand for um, alpha 4. And also Roy Lobb at Biogen had identified VCAM1 expressed by human umbilical vein endothelial cells in culture. So, but no one really knew how alpha 4 beta 1 worked in vivo and how it contributed to disease pathology. And that's where we go back to on the need for a good animal model of EAE. So, the model that we had with our Alzheimer's inflamed brain wasn't really going to be good enough for that. So, we went down the street and visited Larry Steinman at Stanford. And Larry Steinman is a a world expert in multiple sclerosis and in EAE. And we took... we went to him and and showed him our results with alpha-4 beta one integrin, and we had antibodies against alpha-4, and we asked him if he could help us test it in in a really good model of EAE. And that's exactly what he did. Um, N- Nadi Karan, who was a uh, postdoc in his lab at the time, was working with a rat model of EAE. So, the first thing we did was confirm that using brain... sections of inflamed brain from animals with, with... rats with EAE, that we had the same sort of lymphocyte adhesion and that it was completely dependent upon alpha-4 integrin. Nadi then tested one of our antibodies against alpha-4 and found that it was very protective in preventing disease in these... in this animal model. So, that was great, based on that, we, we started bringing in a number of different EAE models into our, our little lab. Um, this was one, again, in the guinea pig, and here we wanted to characterize more thoroughly what um, how alpha-4-integrin works, how quickly it works, and the impact that it can have on the disease. So, in this study, we labeled lymphocytes with indium-111, which is a very high gamma emitter. And we found that... Um, if you inject the cells back into the bloodstream, they will migrate to the brain. So, you can just take out the brain and and do a gamma count and and see how many cells are there. But in the presence of anti-alpha-4, inhibition was um, 80 or 90%. So, in this short-term migration assay, lasting about 18 hours, alpha-4 integrin was clearly affecting the ability of cells to migrate into the brain. And then we treated um, guinea pigs with the antibody, Just at the onset of disease, this was like day 10 or 11, just when paralysis was beginning, but before demyelination had happened. And what we found is that by day 20, we had a very strong impact in preventing demyelination. So, in the control-treated animal, you can see that we have stained these sections of spinal cord with a blue dye for myelin, and there's an extensive loss of myelin um, by day 20 in, in the control animals. However, in the presence of anti-alpha-4, the myelin is almost completely intact, so there was very strong protection against the loss of myelin. We next uh, next, um, treated animals at day 20. So, this is after demyelination has already occurred. And we treated them for a long time, 56 days, because we wanted to see if it would impact the disease and if that impact would last. And what we saw was this a very strong reversal of the paralysis and um, that lasted for the entire time of the treatment. Okay, so we did this experiment a number of times, um, looking at different time points to see what impact that we would have on um, myelin. So, in this study, we treated uh, the animals after demyelination um, had already occurred, and then we inhibited um, alpha 4 for various periods of time. We found that after 20 or 40 days of treatment, that we actually would allow myelin to repair. So, the way we knew this was that, under control conditions, myelin is either present or it's not. So, over here you can see uh, um, that... here is myelin, this is an area where the myelin has been eliminated, and the the line between the two is very, very sharp. So, it's either there or it's not. However, in animals that have been treated with an inhibitor of alpha 4 we saw um, this very pale blue pallor, Which we confirmed by electron microscopy to be regeneration of myelin. So, we believe that what was happening is that by inhibiting immune cell infiltration into the CNS, um, we were dampening down this inflammatory response and basically creating an environment that was permissive for remyelination. So, these are the studies that led to um, the development of Tasabri, which is a, uh, we took our best antibody against alpha 4 integrin and humanized it by CDR grafting. This was done in collaboration with the MRCC in London. Um, And fortunately, the antibody retained the full potency of its murine parent. Just to give a perspective on scale, um, this is a model of an antibody next to a model of an integrin. Um, the, The antibody actually binds to the head group up here, which is the business end of the integrin. This is where it binds to ligands. Now, recently, the crystal structure of natalizumab bound to the head groups of alpha-4-integrin has actually been solved by Yamayu and Spr- Tim Springer's group. So, this is looking at the crystal structure, just at the head groups of the integrin. Um, and the blue is beta-1, and the green is alpha-4. And the ligand binding site, this is for VCAM1, is right in between the two. So, there are critical contact residues on both sides of the line. Now, natalizumab, you found, bounds right next to this. So, um, the binding actually doesn't overlap. And in fact, if you take the business end of VCAM, uh, the first domain, it will bind just fine in the presence of of disoperity. However, the second domain of VCAM um, causes steric hindrance. So, that... When natalizumab natalizumab is bound in the presence of the full-length ligand, um, its binding energy is greatly decreased because of the steric hindrance. What they also noticed in the lab was three critical contact residues within the natalizumab binding site that helped to explain observations that we had made a number of years earlier. So, when you're developing a drug, it's important to have animal species for efficacy testing, but you also need to have two different animal species for toxicology you need to be able to show that it's safe in at least two species. So, we were disappointed, because our, our, our best model for EAE at the time was in the rat. However, the rat has a mutation in one of these critical residues, and we found that the antibody didn't react. Um, there also was an EAE model in the marmoset monkey, which was um, a model that was set up at UCSF, and again, we found that our antibody did not react with the monkey, which we were really surprised, because it's very closely related to the human. But now it makes sense with um, with the findings that there's a mutation in one of these critical amino acids. So we did find, however, that uh, the the antibody reacted with cynomolgus monkey and with guinea pig, and as you can see, that the sequence of the of the three critical contact residues in these species are identical to those in human, and these are the species that we had chosen um, for toxicology. So in order to uh, develop a drug, you need to do a lot of toxicology studies. This is just a subset of the things that we did. And I'm not going to go through all these other than to mention a, a couple findings. Uh, first of all, in the first study up here, it was a, a six-month study in cynomolgus monkey involving very high doses of, of natalizumab. Um, natalizumab, by the way, is the generic name for tesobri. Um, so, we did 60 milligrams per kilogram dosing every week. And in patients... Um, we find that three milligrams per kilogram dosed every month is what it takes for efficacy. So, in fact, in the, in the monkeys, we were achieving blood levels more than a thousandfold that you would find in humans. And so, at the end of six months, we looked to see what impact it, it would have, particularly on the immune system. Re- remember, alpha 4 integrin is expressed by almost all circulating mononuclear cells, and so we were quite interested to see what would happen in the immune system. Um, and, much to our relief, we found that hematopoiesis, um, bone marrow, was, was very much intact. So, lymphocytes and the blood cells were being made normally, and this was important because alpha 4 had been shown to be involved in hematopoiesis. We also did immunotoxic, immunotox, immunotoxicity profiling, and um, found that if you vaccinated animals in the presence of dysabri, the, they responded just, just fine to the vaccine there was a, a slight delay in the initial antibody response, but the animals quickly caught up. And other than that, in these studies we also looked at the impact of um, natalizumab on implantation in development, and as well as on uh, development of the fetus during um, uh, the full pregnancy, and found very little impact there. So, to summarize our, our preclinical and our toxicology studies, Functional screens are are really important when trying to understand a disease process, and this may be an an obvious thing to say, but I'm just so impressed with the simplicity of the tissue assay that we had performed, um, looking at the endogenous induction of ligands involved in this inflammatory process. In fact, this tissue assay is something that was established by Stamper and Woodruff in the 70s, and has been used successfully for identifying a number of immune adhesion receptors. Our other findings were that NT-alpha-4 was effective in multiple models of CNS inflammation, whether it was a a very funny Alzheimer's model or EAE, and in fact, in different labs around the world, it's been shown to be effective in rat, mouse, guinea pig, and primate EAE, as well as two different models of CNS viral inflammation. So, these are models in which there's a, a CNS infection by a virus, the immune system goes in to fight the virus and causes damage, we found that anti-alpha-4 was actually protective there, protected against the damage, and the, the body was still able to, um, to effectively fight the virus. So, again, it was suggest- suggesting that natalizumab that, um, would be safe. Now, there's a lot of criticism of EAE models um, because it doesn't exactly mimic the processes of multiple sclerosis. But in a case like this, where we're focusing on the immune infiltration aspect, I think it's actually a very good model because immune cells need to enter the brain to effectively induce EAE, and they also need to go into the brain to cause MS. So, by studying mechanisms involved in this infiltration process, I think that EAE um, reflects what's happening in in humans. And then finally, natalizumab appears to be safe and well-tolerated in preclinical safety studies. Again, uh, this was important because because of alpha-4 integrin's broad distribution It just um, speaks to the fact that toxicology is an empirical science. You really don't know until you test it. Um, And then, even then, um, it's important to remember that you always need to be vigilant. So, these are the studies that led to the clinical um, program for natalizumab. In the first case, we we looked at a Phase one study in healthy volunteers and found that the antibody was well-tolerated with low immunogenicity. This is just with a single dose. Um, And we also were able to determine that it has a 12-day half-life, which is sufficient for um, once-a-month dosing at 3 milligrams per kilogram. So, reasonable dosing. Um, As we saw in the animal models, there was a two-fold increase in the number of circulating lymphocytes. Um, this This is consistent with the drug's mechanism of action. It's making it a bit more difficult for cells to get out of the bloodstream into tissues, and so, you quickly establish a new equilibrium, um, which involves more lymphocytes in the blood. But this two-fold increase really represents just the higher end of normal range. Based on those studies, we went into a Phase two study. And, and initially, we, we, our idea was to uh, treat um, acute flares in MS. So, a patient would have a flare. They would come into the doctor, get a dose of, of natalizumab. And hopefully, we would quickly dampen down that flare and prevent the damage associated with it. In fact, what we found, and this is with two doses covering um, two months, um, we found that there was no impact at all on the time of resolution um, or the outcome of that relapse. So apparently, by the time a patient is feeling the onset of a relapse, the immune cells are already in the brain, and by inhibiting more, it really does not have an impact. However, what we did notice in the study was that by the end of the second month, the new lesion development in MRI by MRI had basically stopped. So this is looking at uh, the cumulative number of new gadolinium-enhancing lesions um, by MRI, and you can see that in the placebo group in red that there is a pretty consistent accumulation of new lesions. But by the fourth week on um, natalizumab, these lines are beginning to diverge, and so that by the eighth week, the second month, when the drug is still on board, um, you can see that new lesion activity ha- had almost stopped. Um, At the next time point, when the drug was gone, MRI activity began to return. So, this result led us to the idea that since the drug appeared to be safe, perhaps we could take it into MS for chronic treatment, prevent the development of new lesions, and hopefully have an impact on the progression of disease. So, this led to um, our Phase two b study, and this was a six-month study involving monthly dosing, um, as well as MRIs, which are indicated by the M's. And then we followed the patients for six months after that. 210 patients uh, looking at placebo and two different doses of drug. And the primary endpoint would be looking was looking at lesion burden as well as relapse rate. This is what we found. So in the month before treatment began and at the time of treatment, all three groups had some very similar levels of um, MRI activity. And then looking at the placebo group they maintain this level of activity pretty consistently over the 6-month period. However, in the groups that were treated with natalizumab, this is both for the 3 and the 6 milligram group, you can see that MRI activity almost completely stopped. Um, so again, by the second month, activity was very, very low. Now, I have to say, I, I was um, sitting in the audience uh, of, of the company when we first saw these results, and uh, it, it really took my breath away. This, is, this was a day that I will remember in my career. And I think that it, it really changed the way I look at things from then on out, because as a scientist working in the bench, it's really hard to believe that you can have an impact on human disease. And so this, this really made me believe that, and, and, and as I said, has had a long-lasting impact. The drug also affected the number of relapses, so there was about a 50% reduction in the number of relapses, as well as the number of patients who had a relapse, and also decreased the need for steroid rescue. So, these patients, if they had a flare, could, had the option of having steroid, and on netalizumab, they did not feel the need to do that. This is looking at the same data, um, the MRI data. So the blue line is six milligrams per kilogram, the red line is three milligrams per kilogram. Um, and so you can see that um, you can see that the drug is um, for three milligrams per kilogram. When it begins to go away, MRI activity returns. Um, and with six milligrams per kilogram, it takes a little bit longer for, for activity to resume. Mm-hmm. You can overlay um, lymphocyte counts on top of this. So this is looking at the number of lymphocytes in the bloodstream. And at the very beginning, you can see that there's this this increase in lymphocyte counts that's maintained very stably throughout the treatment period. But then in the 3 milligram per kilogram dose group, you can see that as the drug goes away, the lymphocyte counts drop and the MRI activity goes up. And with the 6 milligram per kilogram group, um, you can see this is this is basically shifted by a month. So the cell counts drop and the MRI activity comes up a little bit later. So this is very consistent. This finding is very consistent with the mechanism of action that we're thinking. As blood cells leave the, as, as immune cells leave the bloodstream, um, the MRI activity would resume. Alright, so our, for our phase three studies in relapsing remitting multiple sclerosis, um, in order to get approval for a drug, you actually have to have two separate phase three studies. And so both of these were about thousand patients. Um, the first one involved monotherapy, so it was just Tisabri versus placebo. And the second one was on with patients who were already on interferon beta, which was a standard of care for MS patients. Um, and in this case, these patients were having disease breakthrough even on interferon. So, the trial was natalizumab plus interferon versus interferon by itself. So, this was a randomized double-blind study, as were the Phase two. Um, and involved patients who had to have at least one relapse in the prior year to the study. It was a two-year treatment, um, with an early assessment at one year. And the findings were very consistent with what we saw in Phase two. Uh, number of gadolinium-enhancing lesions, both in, first year at the, in the first year as well as the second year, were inhibited by 92%, so very strong inhibition of, of this apparently acute inflammatory reaction. And this translated to a 68% reduction in relapse rate, again, both in the first year and the second year, as well as in the third year. Um, This is an open-label extension study at this point, so there isn't a placebo control because everyone's on drug. But in all three years, the the disease activity, or the relapse activity, was reduced to the same um, basal level. And this is an interesting finding. This is a subset analysis looking at... um, how um, different levels of activity would impact the efficacy of the drug. So, this is comparing patients who had had one relapse at the onset of, uh, when they were coming into the trial in the previous year, versus three relapses in the previous year. And so you can see that patients who had high levels of disease activity, relapse activity was inhibited down to the same level as everyone else. So, it appears as though um, nadalizumab has a very strong effect on patients with highly active disease inhibiting um, the the relapse rate down to the same level. And then finally, this is the the, uh, critical primary endpoint at the second year of analysis, and this was, how does it affect the overall progression of the disease in patients as measured by the standard EDSS scale? And you can see that there's about a 54% reduction when looking at um, a sustained response over six months. Again, another subset analysis looking at patients with highly active disease. Again, there's a, an even stronger reduction, a 64% reduction in the progression of, of EDS score in patients with, with um, more than two relapses and gadolinium lesions before they came into the study. And then finally, this was uh, not, a, prime, this was not a, a formal endpoint to the study, but nonetheless was a, a measure that was done. And this is the MSFC scale. And here, you can see that the placebo patients... Uh, well, actually, what's interesting about this scale is that it involves um, ability to walk, ability to have dexterity in the hands, as well as, as um, cognitive function, a measure of cognitive function. You can see that the placebo group um, maintained fairly stably over the two-year period, whereas patients on natalizumab actually showed a level of improvement. Importantly, these findings have been consistent across a number of studies. These are actually looking at registrations and observational studies done by MS investigators across the world, and very similar levels of efficacy with respect to relapse rate. So, in summary, two years of treatment with natalizumab decreases disease activity, reduces the, re- the risk of relapse by 68%, and reduces the risk of sustained disability progression um, by 42 to 54%. To summarize the drug safety in these uh, clinical trials, these two-year clinical trials, uh, common adverse events were headache, fatigue, and arthralgia, which are commonly seen in in clinical trials. There also were uh, a few more infusion site reactions in natalizumab versus placebo. Natalizumab actually causes a a, a, a persistent anti-natalizumab response in about 6% of patients. And so in these patients, actually, the drug um, it loses its efficacy because the antibody response causes it to be cleared very, very quickly, which is consistent with the um, infusion site reactions. Um, importantly, there was a similar incidence of infections and malignancies between the two groups. In fact, if you look at this more closely, this is looking at the risk of all infections, and this is for both studies combined. So, um, both the um, monotherapy as well as the interferon therapy trial. And you can see that there is no measurable difference in the rate of overall infection between natalizumab and placebo. So, this is the, the timeline of development. Um, looking back in the beginning of 1990, when the target was of alpha was first identified for multiple sclerosis, um, the antibody was humanized. Um, About five years later, we started the clinical trials. Um, Biogen came in um, with Elan in in about the year 2000, and when developing a drug like this uh, for multiple sclerosis, it's very expensive, because the trials are large, there's a lot of MRI measurements, and so it's really important to have a partner. And in fact, Biogen was a great partner, because they already had a a highly effective drug for multiple sclerosis in the clinic, and they knew a lot about, about the disease. Um, shortly after the partnership was when we had the readout of the phase two data. You know, the, the day that, that um, changed my career. Um, so I think the biogen was very happy about that as well. Um, the phase three study was then shortly initiated. Um, the drug was approved in, in November of two thousand four. Uh, the phase the second year of the phase three study um, completed and read out shortly thereafter. So all said, uh, fifteen years from conception, ten years of clinical experience. Involving 4,000 patients. Now, in the second part of my talk, I'm going to discuss what happens next. And this was just three months after the drug was approved. This is in February of 2005. The entire world for Tisalbury changed. So, in February of that year, we found our first two cases of PML. And PML is a viral infection in the central nervous system that usually results in death or severe disability. So, it's a very serious um, infection. Uh, Two patients in the MS trial had developed PML, and amazingly they had developed PML almost within a week of each other. So, after 10 years of clinical experience, two patients developed PML within a week. And so this was alarming to everyone because it it suggested, well, maybe this is just the tip of the iceberg and half the patients could have PML. So, dosing of the drug was suspended, and we undertook a, a comprehensive safety evaluation at that point. This was extremely complicated because there were 3,000 patients involved or already are still still in clinical trials, as well as a number of patients who were just beginning to take the drug um, from its approval. Uh, So, what I'll talk about in my second part, in the second lecture, is uh, how the medical and regulatory communities, working together with the companies, established a path to allow natalizumab to return, as well as the work that we've done since then to better understand the safety of natalizumab and how PML. Can be monitored. So at this point, I just want to end by thanking all of the collaborators in the both the preclinical and clinical studies. I I will, at the end of my second lecture, actually give a more detailed list of of some of those contributors. Um, But needless to say, there are a lot of very talented people involved in in the development of this drug. Uh, And also I want to thank the many patients who participated in the clinical trials. Um, Without their participation, it would be impossible to develop develop therapies for, for disease.